Hello, my name is RJ Kozane, and you are listening to another podcast version of PGH Art Talk, a part of pghmuseums.org. This interview is something that I wanted to do since day one. It's with an act called Slow Danger. They are contemporary dancers. They DJ, produce music, they sing, they have classes, very involved in technology, queer sci-fi adventures in their shows. I don't even know how to fit all of the things that these two do in a short introduction. Taylor Knight and Anna Thompson are the two who make up this non-binary entity called Slow Danger. And at the forefront of everything, it's dance. And they've been everywhere, including MoMA in New York. Big deal. They've been at the Carnegie Museum here. I don't know where they haven't been in Pennsylvania, specifically Pittsburgh, but probably elsewhere. And I've seen them regionally in D.C. and other areas expanding all over the place. To even kick things off in the interview, how do you even approach people who are that busy and ask what they've been up to? And that's basically what I did. Started off just, it's 2020. What is slow danger in this year? I think the bio says that we're a multidisciplinary performance entity, and I still feel that that holds true since September. Um, And we mostly... We mostly opened that up from what we initially kind of labeled ourselves, which was a performance duo, Mm -hmm. to an entity to house more of the collaborative projects that we're involved in and that we want to continue to be involved in as we enter into the future. Yes, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, I feel like we set out in like 2018 to kind of shift from that identity as a duo to being more of a entity and I feel like coming into 2020 we had some successes in 2019 of figuring out what that shift looked like and how to navigate uh projects so it's feeling like we've we've settled there in 2020 yeah and the things that you guys do pretty much feel like one cohesive piece I know you've described slow danger itself as being like a a non-binary entity Mm -hmm. so when you put on something like uh the first thing I saw you with was empathy machine with the Kelly Strayhorn and it felt like it was you two, but it was also like a group of, was it five collective people? Mm-hmm. And then like the creative ring that mm-hmm. uh, projectile objects mm-hmm. did for you guys. Yeah. yeah. And it just felt like naughty. It wasn't a duo to me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even like a collective. It was just like, this is like an aesthetic that is whole, completely whole. Awesome. I th- yeah. We like to talk about um, the process of building a work where there's multiple bodies and energies involved as if we're building an organism Mm -hmm. that has like differentiated cells but they also are aware and exist within each other um and we spend a lot of time early in the process really kind of um investigating individually through our bodies but also sensing this kind of um group body that we build together yeah, I feel like we've, even in the inception of Slow Danger, we were just talking with somebody the other day. When we first started out, we were like, this is Taylor and Anna dance projects. Um, <laughs> and it just never felt like, it just always felt like another being was being formed. Um, the fusing of our bodies and the bodies of our collaborators and the artistries and minds, it just felt like another form was being created. 
Yeah. Um, so we really enjoyed like you figuring out the language around that for artist statements and bios, um, how to talk about that creative process and that amalgamation of forms. And I also think the like the continued goal is to blur the lines of our disciplines and the disciplines that we engage with in the work. Um, specifically with the new projects we're approaching, a lot of, um, because we're sound artists and movement artists, mm -hmm. a lot of these projects fuse and question and allow us to examine how we can blend our bodies as an instrument to produce sound um, through like sensors or um, interactive virtual environments. Um, Which so you definitely worked in. Yeah, Blurring yeah, yeah. lines is something that is huge in the ethos of the slow danger. And we bring up Resonant Body first, which is a work that they did. I'm just going to read it straight from the page because it's, it's wonderful. It's an installed performance for a limited audience. Audience members are invited to witness an experience via a tactile object that translates a dancer's motion to vibration and sound waves through sensor technology, electrical current, and magnetic drivers. This work aims to respond to ocular centrism surrounding dance and performance, creating a performance work that can be felt through touch providing a larger scope of audience access and entry points. It was developed in 2019, and we dove right into this. The fusion of technology with something as ancient a practice of art as dance and electronic music and fusing that all together is something that is very daring in the city of Pittsburgh, let alone the art scene as a whole right now. Resonant Body comes to mind as yeah. being, um, mm -hmm. you worked in the Carnegie Museum mm -hmm. with sensors on, was it on your body and yeah. the audience's body? Like, how did that work? Yeah. How did that all come about? Because that is groundbreaking. So the sensors that we're wearing on our bodies measure and send our biometric data to basically a MIDI controller okay. that goes into our Ableton software mm -hmm. that is then sent out through, like, a regular aux cable into a resonant speaker that the audience is in contact with. So they're not necessarily um, directly influencing the sound tactile information, but they are receiving it through their bodies. Okay. Um, and I think the kind of impetus to do that came out of Anna and I and some other clivers talking about the ocular centricism of dance and how dance is built um, with that idea that it's going to be viewed through eyes mostly. Um, and I used to work at the Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children mm -hmm. as a paraeducator. And my time there really started to make me think about that yeah. um, and how dance can be delivered um, in a more accessible way as far as sensory. Um, so we wanted to make a dance that was felt. Um, and Robert Zacharias, our collaborator on Resonant Body, um, he is an incredible engineer of objects and um, electrician work. So we were able to bring our idea to him and work together and make it possible to have somebody feel the, the dance. And we want to take it to another level where we're measuring the temperature of our skin and our heart rate as that changes while we dance. So that's like the next level that we're trying to kind of explore and find some residency support for. Yeah. 
And I think as we continue to develop the work, there will be more influence from audience mm-hmm. members. Yeah. Like there will be more of a development of passing off, like where the sensors are housed. Okay. Yeah. And just thinking about like accessibility and art mm-hmm. form is very, I was thinking about that last night that there's not a, a lot out there for someone who may be mm-hmm. blind or even deaf. Um, like two things that come to mind last year, where Resident Body and then People's Pride booked Big Frida. And you have the ASL interpreters up there. And to make it like more like whole for someone who may need them, Mm -hmm. Big Frida just twerked on them the entire time. So it's it's like adding that interaction there Mm -hmm. and just making sure that someone who may be disabled or experiencing something where they can't fully grasp it the same way an abled person would be able Uh to is fantastic. And with resident body, like how did you do testing beforehand or was it just a collaborative work? And you said, let's see if this works. Yeah. There was a lot of conversations with Robert Zacharias from the very beginning. And when we had brought this idea to the museum, because the residency was um, engaged and within the same time span as the access and ability exhibition that was happening, Mm -hmm. Um, they really were excited about the potential of that um, experience being offered in the museum. Um, so we have been working with Robert Zacharias and friends with them for a long time. Um, he actually came to our classes for many years. So he has the background of being in our movement practice before coming in as a collaborator on a project, which I think is awesome. It's always good to know who you're going to yeah. collaborate and, with. And we kind of were like, I think you could do this because you're amazing. How do we build a tactile like system mm-hmm. for an audience that is translating our movement? And he came up with the idea of these wireless MIDI controllers with the sensors because they're relatively cheap things to build. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, all the sensors cost anywhere between like a couple cents to like maybe $3. Yeah. Um, and we were able to communicate with the software wirelessly through radio frequency that is alive and in our air space all the time. And along with those conversations that Anna mentioned, we just did a lot of research and we wanted to use the museum as like the unveiling and presentation of it, but also as the... I guess the beta tests to see how it would work. Um, so it kind of served as both. We kind of went in being like, well, we built this object and it works, but we don't know if it's going to translate. We don't know if the concept with folks is going to work. And mm-hmm. I think after just the first one, we were like, I think it works and this is really exciting. And then we had a, a series of more. So that time at the museum really gave us an opportunity to test um, in a more performative and experiential way, yeah. which I think the project needed. I also think that prior to these beta tests, there was a lot of like, how how do we negotiate this relationship of feeling? Mm. Um, what is the choreography of interaction for mm. the audience? So it, it led us on a lot of avenues. Initially, it was going to be this like kind of helmet that everyone wears and this this wire is in a circle and they're all feeling it through the wire and okay. they have to build tension as a group. Yeah. to contain the performance inside. But we found as we started working with the actual vibrations that if you bend or curve a line, the vibration diminishes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we thought of, okay, well, maybe a straight line 
works best, but how do we make that accessible to people mm-hmm. at any height? So it's not like a bar mm-hmm. that could be um, inaccessible to someone who may not be able to like reach to that level. Or um, So we've considered a diagonal line. It's all really simple things, okay, too. Yeah. You, you come up with these questions, and you're like, oh, the answer is so much more simple than we were initially thinking with this, like, complicated, like, tension system that we were going to build. Right. Um, it's always the logistics where you yeah. have to figure out what is going to happen to make the project work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we take a lot of pride in process and having failures and having trying things and it not working. Every experiment and new addition just teaches us more about what we're getting to. Like Anna said, having three or four designs and finally settling on, oh, it's just as simple as like a diagonal line. Mm -hmm. Um, But I enjoy that unveiling of the process and those discoveries through failures and things not working. Yeah. So it was an exciting journey with, with Robert and us to, to figure that out. For sure. Yeah, I think that was, uh, I love even thinking about that project. I wish I could have been there for it. So hopefully whatever the next step is with like the temperature and stuff, I'm mm. all for that. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're, what's coming. We're yeah. for it. Yes. One of the yeah. things that I really like that Taylor and Anna do with Slow Danger is that they flesh things out until they are ready to be presented. In some ways, I consider Slow Danger, of course, as a, as a peer in this little town of Pittsburgh when it comes to making electronic music and trying to build that scene up in the area. But with everything else, they're on a whole other plane to the point of where I just watch in awe at what they're doing. I knew nothing about dance going into Slow Danger, and I learned so much because they create so many different entry points for you to hop in and kind of find your way into their universe and what they're exploring. Another way that they do that is through teaching. They've been at the space upstairs for I don't even know how long, probably close to a decade at this point, and have had movement classes for a long time. I'm always interested on Facebook, and I told them in the video interview I'm interested in every single one and never show up because I don't know what to expect, and I am not a dancer by any means, and just ask them to break that down for the for the novice. These movement classes, just from what I've seen online, have been eye-opening, but I wanted to hear it from their mouths, because they've been doing it for so long, and it seems exploratory not only for the individuals who are up there at the space upstairs, but also for Slow Danger themselves, because they do so much research that goes into all of their works. The space upstairs has been a space that Anna and I have been a part of for a long time. Um, it's kind of the space when Slow Danger was born that we were able to kind of start building whatever we were setting out to do. So the classes we teach were Anna and I wanting to start offering open level movement workshops for the community, for anyone who wanted to come. Um, and we've, they've been running now on and off for going on six or seven years. Um, yeah. And through the process of continuing to offer them and do them and then eventually doing them in other cities, we've been able to kind of, I guess, brand them as slow danger physical integration um, workshops. Um, and they're intended to be open level for people, um, not marketed so much as like a dance class, but right. an embodiment workshop where people can come um, and we co-facilitate the sessions and it's leading people through imagery and somatic-based um, exercises and improvisational ideas so that they can 
get closer to their own sense of embodiment without this kind of pressure that I think sometimes a traditional dance class can have mm -hmm. for people who've never taken it before. So it feels like a very open and supportive space for experimentation. But we are running some in February here. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's every, <clears throat> every February Sunday, okay. except for the first one. Mm -hmm. And then I believe the 9th of March. Okay. So we're, I think that's, it's about five sessions and, um, we've, we used to offer them every Sunday when we first started out, but since we've started touring and traveling more, it's been harder for us to maintain that, for sure. but we're really excited to be offering them for another extended period of time because I feel like the community really builds through those extended periods. People come back multiple times. And they're able to deepen their practice through like multiple exposures. And, yeah. and it's not like a linear thing. Like people yeah. can come and go as yes. they exactly. Yeah. Floating yeah. Yeah. doesn't really live no. in the linear time. No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> We've kind of built these different, Anna and I talk about it, um, these different kind of modular ways of running the, the workshops. We have mm -hmm. some systems that we feel like work for us and help get us onboarding in those classes. Um, but it's always different. We have to be open to the room and the people that are there. We wanted to open up our process to the public, um, how we create movement, how we think about it. And this also felt like a lens to do that. And we've met many collaborators. Rue Emmons, who was in Empathy Machine, has been in a lot of our work. They were taking our classes a lot. So we've met a lot of people that have become a part of like the Slow Danger entity and family through those many workshops, too, which has just been an exciting, like, plus to doing them yeah um, it's building you feel like you're building a, a community and a, i guess a, a team of folks that understand like why we think it's important to be doing what we're doing um so that feels nice and i think it's really important to offer more spaces where adults are able to have nonverbal processing yes um and i think that is really what our classes offer for people is the space where they can move through their body, their energetic body, their emotional body, and they don't have to like necessarily describe it or, or like have it all out there for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but that process really, I think, integrates a lot of information somatically and also emotionally. Mm -hmm. And I've used it and we've both used it to heal ourselves cyclically over and over again throughout our lives absolutely sure. it's definitely yeah. taken on this wellness factor that people come are attracted to coming to it we get new participants all the time um, that want to come and they want to move through their emotions want to move through things and that just feels really exciting that it's coming out of a dance kind of lens because as anna said that's how we've always felt with dance it's been a way for us to process and heal so it's, and we just wanted to dance with other people and dance more often. So we were like, let's just hold classes and invite people to them. And it's really grown. It's led us to offer these workshops in many cities across the country. That's nice. really exciting yeah. to, to see that it extends further than just Pittsburgh as well. Yeah. While Pittsburgh remains the home. And Pittsburgh remains the home for pghmuseums.org and PGH Art Talk as well. We're not exclusive to Pittsburgh. If you're regional, if you live in Ohio, somewhere south of us, contact us. If you're an artist, if you like what we're doing, we're happy to hear from you. I'm happy to interview you for this podcast or video series. If you're in California, contact me. I don't know if I can make it out that far, but I really know how to work Skype. 
And I think all the volunteers with PGH Museums know how to work it too. So we can figure it out. No matter where you are, no matter where you're listening, I'm here doing this for the art. And so is the entire team behind pghmuseums.org. And we want to expand that in the area, in Pittsburgh, as much as possible, and elsewhere. Right now, we couldn't do anything without the artists like Slow Danger who lend their time to us and um, just sit down with us and expand and push our mission by telling us what they do. We're here for them and uh, for you too. Whether you're listening, whether you watch the interviews uh, on YouTube, without you, PGH Museums is nothing. We're all volunteer ran. We also offer a membership if you want to uh, help us out even more. It's $20 for a year. Get you some percentages off for admissions to galleries, museums in the area. If you're in California right now, I don't recommend it because it's just Pittsburgh and the surrounding area based. But maybe one day. Right now, though, that's just based in Pittsburgh. And if you would like, uh, it's right on our website, pghmuseums.org, and you can sign up. But if not, it's fine. You can support us if without giving us anything. We're here just pushing the art. And again, volunteer ran completely 100% here for the art. As I was going down on the break for the YouTube version of this, Anna snuck in everything that they were doing for the next month. We could think of every museum. If you just name where you're at, I'm sure we have it on our website yeah. listed with events that are happening there. So need to throw up what you're doing. Yeah. So yes. we're doing those workshops while we're here in February and into March. And then we're also starting a new kind of um, cyclical series um, called Open at the Space Upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was coming out of conversations we were having with Pearl and Porter about making um, a space where the process can be made visible. It's not a polished performance. It's also not just a straight improvisational space. Um, it's a space where we can have audience come in and potentially participate um, and engage with something that's in development. Um, and inviting in collaborators who will also be like sharing that space. So this next month on February 13th, we'll be with Jasmine Hearn, who's a dear friend and yes. long-time, long-time collaborator. collaborator yes. The first time I saw Slow Danger and Jasmine Hearn together was at Intimate Subjects at the Carnegie Museum of Art. They were there with Abdu Ali and a lot of other performers. And just, we went into that in vast detail. And so. you worked with her recently, last mm-hmm. year, uh, in the Carnegie Museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Intimate Projects. Intimate Subjects. Intimate Subjects yeah. is what that was. I was there for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I haven't seen someone or, like, a group of people have such control over the audience and involve them to the extent without really directly involving mm-hmm. them. So just to give whoever is watching, like, a background, like, there was... Things spread all across ground floor of the mm-hmm. museum. And then the main thing was like a show where it was you, Jasmine Hearn, and... Um, Abdul Ali. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you had three performers in the main space as well. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the other performer? Uh, Katia Maria, who is uh, a performance artist based out of Berlin, was there with us. Yes, okay. Um, and Projectile Objects um, had an installation that we danced within as well. And then we also had Resonant Body available in the um, music hall for your nice yeah so it spanned all across the museum so we had a 
a big like dance show you had the whole hall to use at the end we just somehow followed you down (laughs) the entire ground floor across all of it and if you're from pittsburgh you know the ground floor is very long and just completely entranced because the performance was continuing and then we get in there. There's like a DJ show with you guys yeah. singing and dancing. And then we get Abdu Ali coming out in this gorgeous gold dress yes. and killing the stage. I just, the amount of involvement with the audience that you have in terms of how to like encapsulate them and just like make them watch and follow is, I haven't seen that since Kanye and Jay-Z at Console Energy Center. <laughs> That's the only, it's a ridiculous yeah. kind of like comparison there. Yes, it is. I understand. Kanye West and Slow Danger and Jay-Z are apples and oranges. But you have to understand where I'm coming at with this. You had to have been at the Carnegie Museum of Art and the Watch the Throne tour. There's been very few instances in my life where I've seen entertainers just make a crowd do whatever they want them to do. And the first time I ever saw that happen, and probably one of the only times in Pittsburgh, was at a Jay-Z and Kanye show. They were doing the big hit from the Watch the Throne record, and I, when I looked around, somehow scored really good seats, everyone's hands were in the air, and it just looked like they turned the arena into a sea. And no one put hands down until it was time to put them down. And you didn't put them down until they said so. And you didn't stop following Slow Danger down that damn museum hall into the music hall until they were like, this is it, guys. We're here. Sit down. Enjoy the show. And then they asked if you wanted to get up and dance with them on the stage. Really, when you think about it, it's not that different from the arena. It's not often that you see like a a local act, not that you're local anymore because you're everywhere, do that. How do you go about like thinking this is how I'm going to involve the audience in this. This is how I'm going to lead them down a hall or even something with empathy machine, which was more like a centralized kind of like sci-fi cyclic sort of structure Mm -hmm. walking through the crowd and grabbing somebody's hand. Like what goes into, okay, this is how we are going to involve the audience. Cause it's not just a community with you guys. It it feels like the community as a whole. Yeah. I think it's a lot of, um, practices that we've tried to engage in these classes of sensing other people. Um, and, and also like, I really like that you bring up that it feels like a community. Like I never, we never want our interaction or engagement to feel like it's forced upon the audience. Mm -hmm. We want to invite them into it and offer it consensually so that we open up the engagement and they have to take the first step to engage as opposed to us, like, grabbing them or, um, like, telling them what to do. Yeah. Um, I think that requires a lot of, like, empathic training and response mm-hmm. of, like, witnessing someone and kind of reading their signals. Um, but then also, like, how do you ask the question? I think is what we also think about a lot with engaging. It's, like, how do we ask the question and then open up the space for them to answer or to respond Mm -hmm. um yeah and intimate subjects specifically that was the third year um that we were able to engage with that programming with the museum so we kind of had some research and past experiential data to work from and some of our past work we've always kind of 
trying to look at how we can diminish the separation between dance audience member and dancer on stage. Um, so Anna talking about the kind of invisible ethics and the nonverbal consent has been a big part of figuring out how that works. And the museum events specifically, there are people who are there who have come to a lot of our work and understand and have built this kind of trust with us. But then there's also new individuals. So there's this intersectional space of what is happening. And I think the conviction from the performers in those museum shows, we're kind of always in the state or the characters that we're playing. Because if we drop that and, you know, and walk away, then the audience yeah. member might not, you know, they may not, they may lose that connection. Yeah. So I think the dedication that all the performers in us had to stay embodied in that, continue to activate the space, be it the corridor or the hallway between, the audience perhaps gets curious and they want to follow and see what's happening. And we even use recognizable gesture and other kind of body language within that um, to help usher them into questioning whether they can follow or not. Because as Anna said, there's definitely moments of acceptance and rejection within that, which is all important responses to have. So we sometimes don't know if it's going to work. That, that, that transition you're talking about from, you know, through the ground floor into the music hall, that was one of the things we've been talking about leading up. Like, this might not work. Like, people might not follow us. We don't know if it's going to happen. Um, so there's always the uncertainty for us, too. And we're always, we were pretty surprised. We we're like, oh, my gosh, people actually came in here. Um, but I think it's just a combination of a lot of intuitive energy, maintaining that presence, um, and seeing the audience and being with them physically and through gesture um, so that they feel like they have agency within that space. Mm-hmm. I to think go. also keeping the, the interaction and the question simple for people so they don't feel like they're getting it wrong. I think that's the biggest thing mm-hmm. when you're starting to incorporate any kind of immersion or interactivity is like, how do you like leave the space open enough so that the audience doesn't feel like, oh, I'm, I'm going to interact wrong. wrong. I'm going to experience wrong. Right. Which because is never... definitely a question I think yeah. everyone in the audience, totally. myself, knowing yeah. you even has. Yeah. Like, what if I do this wrong? Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to mess up their performance for them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's always, and I mean, we have those questions too on our side and me going to other shows and audience member i've felt that too Mm -hmm. um and i think that's always going to be in that space and i think there's something great about that questioning because we think then we start to think about ourselves in the space and our embodiment and how we're engaging um i think we're inspired by that questioning that people might have and how we can build more entry points and make the worlds that we're creating clearer somebody that came to empathy machine um talked about how they question those things when they see dance. Am I getting it? Do I understand it? Am I watching this right? But then they said that they felt like the world that was built on stage or in the space was so clear and had so much shared language and aesthetic and design to it that then they were, they felt like they had arrived and they were there and then they could navigate and find their own sense of meaning and presence. And I just felt like that was a really strong feedback from somebody Um, on how folks feel in those spaces, those immersed environments. Because I feel like a lot of people have those questions surrounding specifically like dance and contemporary performance. It's, they don't, sometimes don't know how to relate to it. They don't realize how much, how much agency they have to offer their own perspective in the space. And I think that's a 
big aspect of our work is providing multiple entry points sensorily and through disciplines so that folks feel like they have the agency to like fixate on one or relate to another. And then all of a sudden they're relating their own experiences to this work and they're having an empathic response to the performers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Keeping it open as you both do, I feel like is the best. It's interesting. Like the lines of communication are so difficult to open sometimes. And then when you break through, it's, it's there and it's, Mm -hmm. It's just there, period. Yeah. 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 Tension and release. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not not going to bring up the alternative dance music that Slow Danger does when in the presence of Slow Danger, because I I feel like bringing up certain aspects without the other is not, you have to strike a balance with what you talk about with them because they do so much. And the last thing that I want to do is to pigeonhole Uh, an act that is all over the place so cohesively, but we sagged into it. And I didn't, I know about production and music. And if, I mean, if you want to hear about that stuff, just DM me on Twitter. I'm there. I'm out there and I do log in and I check everything. I didn't want to go down that road with them. I wanted to know more when they're in the studio, when they're working on like music, how are they thinking about implementing it into all of these different facets that they're involved in? Yeah, I think respectfully and then collectively, Anne and I have always had a connection to sound and music as dancers. I've never had any formal music training. Mm-hmm. Um, my first dance class I ever took as a kid was tap. So I always kind of had this sound making and rhythmic element attached to it. And For I've sure. always enjoyed music and felt like dancers are the conduit to be it silence or sound or the movements. Um, so I think it was inevitable when we continued to make work together to continue to peel the layers back of what we were doing and adding more elements and sound definitely emerged. Um, at first it felt very exploratory, uh, and tinkery, but I think the more we wanted to enmesh that with the work we were making and our bodies, um, we had a clearer sense of what that zone, what that space was going to become. I also think we were very lucky to be surrounded by a lot of friends who were very generous with their knowledge Um, and generous with like their gear, like showing us how to use a doll, you know, showing us like digital audio workspace (laughs) for anyone. Lending us some like instruments that we started experimenting with and creating our own sounds with and um, giving us advice on the best cables and stuff like that. Um, We would not be where we are without the friends that have helped us kind of develop this, specifically our friend Dario, who also managed us locally and started getting us booked um, throughout Pittsburgh. And I think really, like, going through that process of the learning curve of learning another discipline. I was a vocalist. I was trained in like classical musical theater voice growing up, but I um, really was able to use my voice as an instrument through this process of learning how to use digital and electronic instrumentation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that's a huge thing for it as well as how do we embody 
the sound mm -hmm. and how do we bring embodiment to the sound mm -hmm. and the sound is another extension of our body mm -hmm. at that point yeah. that physically impacts an observer um yeah and we think a lot about building worlds like when we've been thinking about the work that we make uh we try to think of it like that we're making so an cohesive. ecosystem we're making a world we're yeah. creating a landscape and sound feels like such a part of that mm -hmm. for me like dreams that i've had or i've always loved music and films and the kind of atmosphere that can create um we wanted to be have a hand in that also logistically not having to ask for rights to use other music and stuff yes. of course is like a logistical benefit but as anna was saying it felt like this extension of our bodies and we just had this desire and we didn't know what we were doing but we had friends who hey you like this sound you might like this reverb pedal it might mm -hmm. give you this quality that you have or you might enjoy this machine um it's just been a very healthy exploration finding people that really are supporting one another yeah. and 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 it continues you know even um like having a residency through pearl art studios with stacy pearl and herman yes um like herman opening up his studio to us and like showing like teaching us how he works within his studio has helped us learn more about kind of engineering within our own like giving <laughs> us a plug-in you know and yes. us kind of like playing with it on our own like these small acts of like sharing our like wealth of knowledge with each other mm -hmm. um really helps build a community and mutual growth yeah and seeing how that opened up to like people wanting to you know our friend Juan who runs Misc and is a part of the Detour collective mm -hmm. wanting to release that music like Juan coming to our shows hearing music for it and working with us um that's support and that trust to like put something out there that is created through these different lenses really just excited us and still does and it's cool because in Pittsburgh we know it's a smaller city so you yeah. can see a lot of ripples of the things that you do um as opposed to a much denser city maybe and we've met people through the DJ and techno communities who now come to our shows and we go to their events and we had people help us learn how to DJ and um why we had that desire and help us kind of articulate um what we were doing and just simple things of like backing things up properly and having things ready to be played all things that i don't think yeah. i know how to literally, do literally and like literally like the, the learning yeah. curve felt i think sometimes i mean sometimes i do still feel that sense of like imposter syndrome or like i don't know what i'm doing Me too. but mm -hmm. i try to trust that uncertainty because okay. there's things happening these there's creations coming out and it feels like a part of us and a part of me that is sacred and ritualistic yeah. at this point. So And I think we've also learned so much now that we're also getting into scoring more dance and like theater and kind of commission work. It's mm -hmm. like yeah. through each commission we're able to learn something. We're able to maybe pull out a piece of gear we haven't in a while and learn it more deeply right. through this process with another person. Um also something that we've been getting into and have done from the beginning is sampling within the process. So yeah. sampling within a dance studio and incorporating that into the sound score or taking the room tone of a specific 
place that we're performing in and and creating an ambient layer through that kind they of do that reverberation yeah. room too. Yeah, it adds yeah. something like that just glues everything. Exactly. exactly. That connection to place and that yeah. furthering of the world. We we were just with um, a friend of ours, Mark Caserta, who is choreographing on a company in New York City that we're making the music for. And we had a lot of that give and take with him talking about the environment and the world. And being dancers also, there's kind of this expedite of the expedition of the language. Like we can understand the choreographer because we are choreographers too. So that's been something that we've enjoyed. We've always tried to see how close can we get the disciplines to being one thing. Yeah. and it feels like we're figuring that out. Yeah, and we understand the process of the studio. That is where we feel most comfortable. Sometimes, and I notice this in myself, sometimes more comfortable than I feel in like a studio scenario. Mm-hmm. I'm like so much more comfortable just improvising and recording in a dance in studio. A dance studio. Just studio. because I'm like, this is my space. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think recording studios, um, yeah, for me felt um, very um, intimidating. Oh, yeah. Um, I've worked in them and I mm-hmm. still would rather be in like, my bedroom or yeah. recording something right. that I'm doing live on stage yeah. and using it later exactly. and walking in. They have their space for sure, but yeah. it's like, I have to get all this work done. And pay yeah. So right. yeah. 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 And I think also like the process that we've had with Herman really helped us kind of jump over that Definitely. by him also like setting up a studio so that everyone's comfortable mm-hmm. yeah. and asking like, how do you want to record? You want to do an affected vocal with your loop pedal and then like a dry one so that we right. can mix the two. Options. I was like, um yeah so it's all continuing to like process and be in process and never to feel that we have this fixed idea of how we make something the collaborators involved in the slow danger world are vast and they all have a connecting piece to what makes any part of what slow danger does whole but when you put all of those working pieces together and see all of these different parts and coming together as a whole, I was very interested to ask them, just to them specifically, because slow danger means a lot of things to a lot of different people. They had this kind of like multimedia event called Patho S. And projectile objects were involved in it. I know a lot of different performers were there. So you have this combination of like visual dance music and then the people involved in it as well, creating their own vibe as you walked through this venue. I, you can't describe something like that. You have to just experience something. And I wanted to know to them, what does the slow danger world look like to them? What is it? Yeah, what what does yeah. the world look like? I feel like it um I really like what you said earlier about it not being linear. Like a lot of yeah. our worlds I f- we want to capture the sense of non-linear space and time mm-hmm. that it could be alternate dimension, that it could be just like through the window that you looked in earlier. Yeah. Um that um, and I think that's with our research with virtual reality and augmented reality, we really, um, that is a really physical way of showing that. Yeah. And that's why I was so excited to get into those collaborations, specifically with our friend Anna Henson that we've been mm-hmm. working with for 
probably two or three years now. Um, It's like a physical way we can show this paralleling reality that is influenced by the reality that we live in. Um, So kind of this quantum feeling. Yeah. Or the butterfly effect. It's like if I yeah. flap my wings over Definitely. here, it changes the reality and like the through the through the window. Yeah. You know? I think we think a lot about portals and how the worlds can have that sense of stretched out time or time not existing or other dimensions. We have always tried to take the shape of the containers that we're offered as far as being presented in, be it a house or a proscenium space or a gallery. I, we enjoy like transforming that space and having people come in and, you know, we get feedback all the time where it's like, the space is completely different. Like it doesn't even feel like I'm in a house or in this gallery anymore. It It feels like a new space. Um, So I think what it looks like is it has this, this mood to it, this feel. um, We're very inspired lately by kind of um post-apocalyptic and like um futuristic environments in a queer future um so we've been thinking a lot about design elements we have desires to have bigger sets and to try to get to a place where we can use more objects and more larger scale set pieces and things interactive tech um so that we can make the worlds more enhanced and even larger in that sense and with what taylor was bringing up I think also this world is not a utopia. This world is also a reflection of the one that we live in, which is flawed and fragmented and painful. And how do we present that, but also not anguish in that? Like, um, and how do we present that in a way that could be critical of the one that we live in now? Um, and the critiques are there even down to something like last year, empathy machine. Mm-hmm. Empathy has been critiqued of, has been lacking. Yeah. And you've explored even in the drag scene, working with the moon baby and princess Jafar, like working within non-binary and queer Mm. spaces. It's definitely come across Mm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I also feel like when we were even doing research on empathy, there were arguments about like, do we even need empathy anymore? Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's interesting. We can take this thing and we can take anything and basically make a critique on it. There's a medium article on it, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> a, like that's like examining it and deconstructing sure. it. Um, and to acknowledge that and to not shy away from that, I think to not, um, uh, um, to not put all this expectation on everything to be perfect yeah, yeah. is really important in our process and in the way that we live in life and we exist with people. Yeah. I've had to really relinquish that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not perfect. You know, why should I put that on another person? Yeah. And how do I come to terms and reflect? And, and that doesn't mean I always have to accept it, but how do I mm-hmm. exist alongside it? Um, and we've talked a, a, a lot about feeling that we don't need to create these works, whatever the statements and the subject matter that we're working with, we don't need to set out to solve the problem with empathy and technology, but it's a response. We we live in this world too, and we're responding to that, um, trying to not always have a definitive answer because we don't know what's going to happen, how things shift, but being able to create spaces where it's being questioned 
um, and it's being looked at and art's being made in response to it feels like a responsibility that we want to take on, um, yeah. reflecting what's happening um, in our everyday. And I think what's exciting about the future is like all these collaborators that we are existing with who are, are resonating in the same sphere and that we're able to kind of cohese not only like our movement and sound, but invite in like visual elements, mm-hmm. fashion um, with our friends, Mad Recital, mm-hmm. who are also noise musicians, yes. who will be then collaborating on kind of within our sonic world too, to kind of continue to blur the lines through these relationships that we build with other folks who are awesome. Yes. Yeah. And you guys are awesome as well. Thank you so much for doing this interview and bringing your little community to our community. This is Slow Danger. I am RJ. You You are the the viewer is the next line in that little splice there. And I couldn't end the Slow Danger interview with just that. They did this really good remix to an already iconic track by local drag queen legend Princess Jafar called Daddy. And so we ended the interview and before the camera was cut off, I just had to sneak this in. Uh, thank you so much and thank you so much. Thank, thank you, RJ. You. Yes. Yeah. Daddy's never coming home. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> no, he's not. You had to pay the daddy toll. <laughs> I see it in the intro in the video version of this. It's an absolute pleasure anytime you sit down with Slow Danger. They're insightful and just listening to them talk. I know this is a longer installment of the podcast, but I couldn't cut anything because everything is just a strong statement with them. And nothing is stronger, shout out to Princess Jafar, than knowing daddy's never coming home. Thank you too for listening to this podcast and we will catch you at the next one we're going to end this out here of course with the iconic sidekick media snippet and yeah if you want to support us pghmuseums.org again if you're in pittsburgh if you're in the surrounding area and you want to be on this podcast and you want to be interviewed and share your art with us contact us we're here till next time i am rj Cozane. they were slow danger Brian Crawford helped edit this, and see you next time. Sidekick Media Services. We are your sidekick in business for social media, video production, and more. Find out more at sidekickmediaservices.com.